Hello, welcome to the Revive for the Journey podcast, where we give you this week's message from Cove Church. We pray that it blesses you and helps you grow deeper in your journey with Christ. Enjoy. John chapter 10, starting at verse 7 through verse 10, says this. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Let's pray before we jump into the word today. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to open your beautiful, holy, life-giving word. And I pray that as we talk about your word and we talk about your ways, you'd open our hearts, open our minds, open our motivation and will to be conformed to your image. Lord, set me aside that our eyes would be fixed and focused on Jesus today. In his name, amen. My daughter works for an e-commerce company out of New York City, and last Monday, she sent a text to me and my boys. We have a family text thread, and so it was a Monday morning, and she sent this text. She said, I don't think when God created the earth, he intended for us to become e-commerce managers. I feel like we should be out playing in waterfalls. Isn't that about the most Monday-ish, Monday morning text you could ever get? Uh, Sometimes we feel that. It, It expresses that sense that many of us feel, probably all of us have felt at some point, that we often feel dissatisfied. We often ask the question, isn't there more to this life than what I'm experiencing? It's the age-old question passed down through time is, how do I live a happy life? How do I live a full life? How do I live a flourishing life? See, on the one hand, we have this promise from Jesus that said that he came, that he would give us life, and not just life, but life to the full. It's a beautiful promise. But on the other hand, we live in this experience of reality where we face struggle and problems and discouragement and rejection and loss and pain and disappointment. And so we live in this tension between those two realities. Now we experience pleasure, but often the pleasure we experience is short-lived. It's temporary. You know, we, we, uh, we get a new car and we love the new car, but then it eventually is not a new car and there's a newer car or, or uh, we, we go on a vacation, but the vacation ends. And so that's just this temporary pleasure. And so we live in this tension. So how do we live out a flourishing life? See, we were designed from the very beginning in in his image, in God's image, to flourish. Now, I talked about this a few months ago here. I won't get into it in depth, but we were designed to flourish. God said that that he made humanity in his image, male and female. He made it in his image. And then he said that he wanted us to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living thing. And so there's this sense of rule that you hear the language of kingdom in that. And then he said, he blessed us and he said, be fruitful and multiply. You hear that agricultural language of fruitfulness and multiplication that he wanted 
us to flourish. He wanted us to partner with him in the original creation to begin to expand what he had begun in partnership with him. That everything that we touched, all the trees and plants and the environment and people, he wanted it to continue to grow and flourish. Of course, that image was broken and distorted by sin. And so the entire narrative of scripture from that point forward is getting us back to that original image that God intended for us. And that is to partner with him that everything in our life and in the lives of those we touch would flourish. God sent Jesus to show us what that image could look like in a lived out life. So Jesus comes on the scene and we hear from the Apostle Paul in the book of Colossians chapter 1. And verses 9 through 14, I want you to just hear about the life that he is talking about that we can have. He says these words. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Bearing fruit in every good work. There it is again, bearing fruit. It's that agricultural language. He wants us to bear, bear fruit in our lives and in the lives of those we touch and the things that we say. He goes on to say growing. Again, there it is, growing, flourishing in the knowledge of God. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Why? So that you may have great endurance and patience. The implication here is why would we need endurance and patience? We need endurance and patience because Jesus knows and the Apostle Paul knows that we're going to encounter some struggle. We're going to go through some difficulty. I started running again because I'm just so terribly out of shape. And I run for a mile and my legs hurt and my heart feels like it's going to pound out of my chest and I can barely breathe. And then I think of a friend of mine. Her name is Ruth. She is a Olympic class runner. She runs 50 miles a week and that's no exaggeration. And I think about her. She's an endurance runner. And what endurance runner means to me is she's just in pain a lot longer. So I think about that idea of, of endurance. God strengthens us with his might so that we can endure because he knows we're going to go through some things. And patience. Why do we need patience? Because things don't go in the timing we think they're going to go. If they went in the timing we thought it was going to go, we wouldn't need patience. But God gives us his might to give us endurance and patience and, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you, listen to this, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. There's that kingdom language again. And God has qualified us, not in anything we have done in and of our own, but because God loves us, he has qualified us through his son to share in the kingdom of light. It goes on, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, that, that God is, because he's qualified us, rescued us out of this kingdom, this dominion of darkness, where we weren't ruling in partnership with God, but we were under the rule, under the, being slaves to sin, under the dominion of darkness. God pulls us out of there, puts us in the kingdom of his son, that Jesus is our king, that we have a king and we have a savior. That king is not the president, it's not Congress, it's not the Supreme Court. The king is certainly not LeBron James, and it's not even Brock Purdy. The king is Jesus, and he is the only one who can save and rescue us and give us the flourishing life. And then it says in verse 15, this powerful statement, it says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So God creates us in his image, and then he says, I want to show you what a lived out image is going to be. And you will find that in my son, Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. And Jesus talked about a kingdom too. 
The idea of kingdom is that's the place of God's rule and reign. We sometimes think about the kingdom of heaven as someday, but it's not just someday. It starts as soon as we become followers of Christ, we live within the realm of his kingdom and he wants us to live in his kingdom ways and he wants us to take his kingdom power with us everywhere we go. And when we bring that, we can cause things to flourish. That's the place of God's rule and reign and he does it in us and he does it through us. But when we think about the ways of Jesus' kingdom, you got to look at the way Jesus lived. What does his kingdom look like? What does lived out kingdom uh, image of God look like? And we remember Jesus came in humility, in love. He fought for the underdog. He spoke up for the vulnerable and the marginalized and the broken. He gave hope to those in bondage and who were isolated by shame. He helped us to see things in new ways and from different perspectives than had been known even by the religious community of that day. Where the religious wouldn't associate with sinners, Jesus was having dinner in their homes. He says things like, don't exact revenge or harbor anger, unforgiveness, be people of illogical grace and mercy. He showed us that to be great, you need to be a servant. He elevated women and children to a place of honor in a society that had relegated them to a place of inferiority. He was helping us to see this world, our culture, life through a different lens, turning what the culture knew upside down and on its ear. He then showed us the ultimate expression of love, of course, when he laid his life down for us, uh, paid for our sins, gave us that opportunity to be back in that partnership with God, and then rose again, giving us victory, and giving us the power by his spirit to live like he lived. His life showed us what our life could look like. So if you want to know what a flourishing life looks like, it has to start and it has to end with Jesus. He is the image of God. And we are created in God's image as well. See, there's a thief that comes to steal and to kill and destroy. He wants to wreck your life. He wants to steal your purpose. He wants to kill your God-given dreams and he wants to destroy your identity. And often the way he will do that is to cause you to chase futile pursuits that will leave you wanting, it will leave you empty, and he will distract you with false pictures of happiness. And you'll go chasing after those because you think that must be the flourishing life, but Jesus paints a different picture. It's Jesus who came to give us life. It's Jesus that said, I will give you an abundant life. See, Jesus is the gate. That passage in John we read says that Jesus is the gate. If you want to go into that pasture where that abundant life resides, you can go in and out, but Jesus is the gate. Everything else is a, is a thief. Jesus wants us to flourish, but it might be a different picture than what we might expect. See, when Jesus came onto the scene in public ministry, Matthew 4, 17 tells us, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now that became uh, the summary line or the big idea of his life and preaching from that point forward. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent. What did he mean by that? Reorient your life. Turn from going this direction in your sin and turn around and start going toward Jesus. Start following him. He said things like deny yourself, take up your cross. In other words, die to ourselves, die to that way of life we've become familiar with and start to follow him. He said things like, if, if, if you want to save your life, 
You'll need to lose your life as you've known it. Now, we think if we want to save our life, no, we got to save it. He said, no, if you want to save it, actually, you got to lose your life as you've known it and follow me. Open yourself up to being reshaped in God's way. So repent, he says. And then he says, the kingdom of heaven is near. That kingdom of heaven came in the person of Jesus. He brought the reign and rule of God with him. And then he gives that reign and rule by his spirit to us to live that out. And then Jesus launches into what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And he's asking that big question that we talked about. The age-old question, how can I live a happy life? How can I live a fulfilled life? How can I live a flourishing life? That's the question he's answering in the Sermon on the Mount. And he goes up on the mountain, the Bible says. He sits down on the top of the mountain like a sage. You can kind of get this image. He sits down on the top of the mountain. He calls his disciples to him. They're all standing. He's sitting and he's dispensing this this wisdom, and he starts with something called the Beatitudes. Now, if I ask you, what is a Beatitude? It's a difficult word for us to define. It's hard for us to know, okay, we know maybe where it is in the Bible, or we know that it is in the Bible somewhere, but what is exactly a Beatitude? And we don't really have a good English word that defines it for us. It comes from a Latin word, beatus, and and from a Greek word, makarios. And, and, And so I don't, I don't, say those languages as some sort of weird flex. I'm just saying it's, those languages help us to understand the depth of that meaning better than any of our English words can. And it means flourishing or it means happiness. Uh, Jesus is describing here what true life, what abundance, what flourishing looks like. The state of flourishing. See, every religion, every philosophy, every marketing campaign whether the religion is Buddhism or Hinduism or Confucianism or Judaism, whether it's uh, Plato or Aristotle or Stoicism or humanism, uh, whether it's Lexus or Goldman Sachs or essential oils or LA Fitness or Hobby Lobby, they're all trying to tell us, here's what to do to have a flourishing life. They try to paint this picture and they all give us these sayings. So there are some really inspirational sayings out there. Things like what lies behind you and what lies in front of you pales in comparison to what lies within you. That's Emerson. A diamond is merely a lump of coal that did well under pressure. Another one, do not allow people to dim your shine because they are blinded. Tell them to put some sunglasses on. That's from the great philosopher Lady Gaga. Or never put off until tomorrow what you could do the day after tomorrow. That's Mark Twain, a famous Mark Twainism. So whether they're funny sayings or whether they're profound sayings, these sayings are all beatitudes. They are sayings, they're macarisms, come from that word makarios, they're beatitudes, they're statements that invite you to see the world in a different way and then learn to live in a different way so that you can thrive. That's the idea of a beatitude. That's what a beatitude is. And so what are Jesus' macarisms? What are his beatitudes? What are the ways to see the world in a different way from Jesus' eyes? And we, we read in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3, 3 through 9. And by the way, this translation comes from a scholar named Jonathan Pennington. And it reads this way. Flourishing are the poor in spirit because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Flourishing are the mourners because they will be comforted. Flourishing are the humble, because they will inherit the world. Flourishing are the ones hungering and thirsting for righteousness, because they will be satisfied. Flourishing are the merciful, because they will be given mercy. Flourishing are the pure in heart, because they will see God. 
Flourishing are the peacemakers because they will be called children of God. Flourishing are the ones persecuted on account of me because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now, I realize this probably isn't the translation you have in your Bible, but it is painting a picture of what Jesus says a life of fullness, a life of flourishing looks like. Most of our translations say blessed, or if you're old school, blessed. Uh, And when we read blessed, we usually read blessed like, if you do this, God will bless you. And sometimes our understanding of blessing is connected to uh, material or it's connected to, you know, peace or comfort. But, but it, this isn't what this, this, the Beatitudes are saying. What Jesus is giving us is a vision of the state of happiness or blessing or flourishing from God's perspective. He's saying, if you follow me, here is what your life, here's what you will experience. And it's good to look at all these together. I think they're intended to look at all of these together. And when you look at all these together, if you just look at them, if you just read what we've just read, what do you notice about them? What do you notice about these? When Jesus answers the big question, how do we flourish? How how do we have a happy life? And then he starts with flourishing are the poor in spirit. Flourishing are the mourners. The way Jonathan Pennington says it is like this. He says, the door into happiness is very low and cross-shaped. He says, you, you, you kind of have to crawl into it. That there is a recognition that in this world, we will have trouble. We will have difficulty. See, we expect happiness to be much more upbeat and much more positive than these statements Jesus gives us don't we we want to live laugh and love right we want to be too blessed to be stressed but these sort of have a dark and almost negative tone to them blessed are the poor in spirit there's just this desperation to understand that in and of myself I'm not enough blessed are those who mourn this awareness of brokenness or loss in the world or maybe in my own life or in ourselves. Humble. Humble sounds like a great word, but what it means is you don't get the honor you deserve. Somebody else gets the glory. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. There's this longing that God would set things right because there is so much wrong. There's injustice. And there is, as we've heard just even this last week, there's so much violence and death and sex trafficking and all of the things. So there's this longing, there's this hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You see, he's inviting us in to adopt his wisdom that true life is not found in what feel like the natural ways to find happiness. I, you know, I just need to get a better job. I just, just need to have some more money. Maybe if I have kids, then I'll finally find it. Or I need to find the right spouse. Or I just got to take another vacation. Or uh, maybe if I retire, then, then I'll finally find my flourishing. These are all good things. Nothing wrong with even pursuing those things. They're all good. But, but the flourishing that Jesus imagines for us is never going to be found in those things. The way is his way. Forgiving others. Humility. Being a peacemaker. Being merciful. Longing. For God to set the world right. You see, we want to defend ourselves. We want to make people notice us. We want to exact revenge. We want to prove how great we are. At least we want to hint at our achievements so people will notice us. 
We want to ignore the problems of the world and live in ignorant bliss and in our comfort and in our pleasure. And we think that must be flourishing. But Jesus is saying you'll never find it there. It's important to notice in these Beatitudes what's in the second half of these sayings. Critical. And sometimes we don't understand what's the connection between the first and the second. We don't have time to get into all of that. But, but it says flourishing are the poor in spirit because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. That those who feel like they don't have, a, they don't have it in themselves to offer. He's saying, okay, so people who, who think they have everything they need, they don't need a king. But those of you who don't feel like you have anything to offer, I will be your king and the kingdom of heaven is going to be yours. Flourishing are the mourners because they're going to be comforted. We want to be comforted. Of course, we want to inherit the world. We want to be satisfied. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, you're going to be satisfied. You're going to be shown mercy if you're merciful. You'll see God. You'll be called the children of God. These are all of the things that we are longing for and the promises that he gives us are amazing. Your poverty, your mourning, your hunger, your persecution is not the end of the story. We talked about Jesus' call to us to lay down our lives, to repent. But he's not saying here in the Beatitudes, listen, you need to have a poverty of spirit and then I'll bless you. You need to mourn about something and then I'll bless you. No, he is saying that when we follow, a consequence of following him, an outcome of following him in a broken world, we will start viewing ourselves and we will start viewing the world through a different lens and the world may start treating us a little differently too. There will be difficulty because we will feel the brokenness of the world in more intense ways and it will create in us this longing for the ideal of his kingdom that we were created for because now we're a part of that kingdom and so now there's this longing in us that it can be different than this and we will feel it in new ways. And there'll be a desire to see his kingdom at work in the midst of the mess. We'll feel a poverty of spirit. We will mourn. We will hunger and thirst for righteousness. We will go through the fires of purification. And we'll be tempted to give up and check out. We'll be tempted to not care and to get apathetic. We'll be tempted to think it just doesn't matter or it's just not worth it. We'll be tempted to chase the wind. But if we will follow him, if we will allow him to shape us into his image, the, the image he created us to live within, listen, your story is not over. He has not left you. And there is a promise of a happy and flourishing life, even in the midst of what you're going through and forever when God makes everything new. In 2015, Dylan Roof walked into the Emmanuel African Methodist Church and he opened fire and murdered nine people in an act of racist hatred. One of those killed was Sharonda Coleman Singleton, 48 hours after having lost moms and sons and husbands and wives and brothers. Loved ones appeared in a court for Roof's hearing. And they were given opportunity to speak and unexpectedly, one after another, offered forgiveness to Dylan Roof. Chris Singleton wasn't in the courtroom that day. He was somewhere else. He didn't know what had happened in the courtroom. But he too, the son of Sharonda, uh, separately felt compelled to extend mercy to Dylan Roof. How could that happen? 
That's the Spirit of God, the kingdom of God working in his people. See, God wasn't saying, here's your chance to flourish now by extending mercy. But those who were devastated by this act recognized that there is something bigger and beyond that horrific moment, that exacting vengeance and returning evil for evil would not result in a flourishing life and would not exemplify the kingdom of God in which they lived and represented. And in extending mercy, God looked down and then said, blessed are the merciful. Those are the kind of people that are flourishing and they too will receive mercy. See, I have mourned this year the loss of my wife. But God didn't say to me, okay, Chris, now that you have mourned, you can have a flourishing life. That's not the point of the Beatitudes. No, see, there's a recognition that though it aches, this isn't the end. And that he is my comfort through it. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That even in the morning, I can have a flourishing life because he is with me through it. God doesn't ask us to follow him out of mere duty. It's not, I'm God and you're not God, so you just got to follow me because it's the right thing to do. No, that's not why he does it. The reason God asks us to follow him, the reason we should follow Jesus is because God knows that's when we'll find the answer to the big question where we've been asking, how can we live a flourishing life? Follow Jesus. God wants us to flourish. It's beauty that motivates, not duty. So here's the summary. First of all, God created you to flourish. Second, we flourish by following Jesus. Sounds simple, but we flourish by following Jesus. How did he live? Let's live in accordance with him. Number three, a flourishing life lives in the countercultural hope of God's kingdom ways. You said you're going to be tempted to check out. You're going to be tempted to quit. But there's hope. God is with you and God will see you through it. Let me give you just an extra point here that you can't flourish alone you will only flourish in the you can't flourish in isolation you'll only flourish in the context of of community because when you can't believe for yourself there will be others who will believe for you who've been down that road so here are the questions i'm asking today number one are you following jesus if you want to live a flourishing life you got to start following jesus he is the gate he will lead you to the abundant life Number two, how might you need to reorient your understanding of happiness, blessing, or flourishing to align with God's perspective? Start to see your life. Start to see our world through God's perspective. And you'll start seeing a new perspective of flourishing. And number three, is there anything you're holding on to right now that is keeping you from the flourishing life God promised? Amen. God bless you. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. To stay connected with all things Cove Church, visit our website, covechurchpnw.com or on all social media platforms at Cove Church PNW. We'll see you next time.